everyone. It's Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu, and back with a new edition with a very old friend, as well as my son Noah, who requested us to do a podcast with Jack Cornfield. Jack, so happy to have you here. Thanks for coming. I'm very happy to join. So Noah and I uh, have been doing some podcasts over the last couple of years because Noah is working. You know, he does one of the things he does for us is uh, show notes for each of the podcasts, the ones he gets. We got a lot of them now, and uh, so at first he was quite struck by someone you know quite well, Jack Joseph Goldstein. And so that gave him the idea, gee, I wonder if I could ask Joseph a couple of things. So we did that, and um, that piqued his, uh, and we did something in, um, also in Maui, right, Noah? We did something with Duncan, I think. Duncan and, and, uh, and Pete? Bob Thurman. Uh, oh, Bob, All right. And so then Jack, he said, I really would love to be able to talk to Jack. So this is a continuation of the series of Noah asks the question. Basically, and, what, what's on Noah's mind? Yeah, yeah which can be complex. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As, as I was writing out that list of questions, actually, I, I read through it again. I'm like, wow, maybe I just need to go see a therapist or something. But uh, <laughs> that's why we have better help, right? Yeah, well, Jack has acted in that stead uh, off times in uh, over the last many, many years. I know that. Um so here we are, and uh, I'm going to let you rip here with your first uh, query to Jack. Well, first of all, Jack, I I just I don't get this opportunity, so I wanted to start by saying thank you. Just thank you for your your presence, and uh, I don't know. I, I feel like you've uh, got a lot of that same loving awareness that uh, that Ramdas always talked about, and. Uh, so I just I just feel that with you, and I needed to say that before we get any further into this. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, um, he's uh, one of my great inspirations and role models. I want to be more like Ramdas when I grow up. I uh, uh, I think you're if, doing a pretty I, good job. If I grow up, <laughs> <laughs> or if I uh, can grow up, yeah, those those things. Oh, let me say something too, because I. Uh, Jack, as far as I'm concerned, needs no introduction, but let me just say, you know, we've had a uh, quite a run we did with Ramdas being in Maui, and Ram and Jack spent a lot of time with Ramdas along with his wife Trudy, and I would be there oftentimes as well, and and we we just spent glorious times with Ramdas, and. Uh, it's it, uh, the family that Jack represents, it, which goes over all the way back to uh, when the early earliest days in the early seventies and Naropa and all of that, and then in the ensuing last couple of years, uh, to have this family as a a landing place after Ramdas left has been so extraordinarily important for us and for everybody who uh, joins us in uh, Satsang Sangha. So, uh, aside from Jack's incredible teaching career, his life as a monk, uh, the uh, intersection of so many different themes that Jack has worked on over the ages is is, uh, is quite phenomenal. But it's the family 
that uh, we became part of together that is so important to me. Yeah, thank you. I, I got to be friends with Ram Dass in 1972, 50 years ago. So we've, we've had a long, great ride as a whole community in Sangha and Satsang. So thank yeah. you. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead, Noah. Okay, so yeah, um, speaking of, you know, great beings and with great loving awareness, uh, we just uh, had someone uh, very recently who left his body in, in Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, yes. And, and I was wondering if you just had any stories uh, to share about him, any, uh, you know, teachings that really got to you, anything like that. One of Thich Nhat Hanh's remarkable gifts, and there were many, was his ability to take what are profound and sometimes also complex Buddhist teachings and make them transparent and available to everyone. Mm. So, for example, he took the cycle of dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, which is quite central in Buddhist philosophy and psychology. He changed the language to interdependence, and he talked about how we interbe with a tree and a, a cloud and how every sandwich we make, we eat has the wheat from Saskatchewan and the farmer who drove the tractor and his wife who made the lunch for him that day and the earthworms and the rain. And he taught us these profound teachings in an immediate and poetic way. And his, his work and his kind of deep and um, consciousness and vision enabled him to live in the paradox of multiple realities with mm. kind of grace. And the last time I saw Thich Nhat Hanh, was after his major stroke. So that was about five years ago, maybe 2018 or so forth. And he had um, been in a hospital in France. He was unable to speak and could only move one arm a bit. He was really quite disabled, much more so, so than Ramdas even. Um, and he'd been brought to San Francisco for half a year of rehab and medical treatment and was staying in a beautiful home that was offered with a group of monks and nuns. And every morning they would do a Zen meditation practice. So Trudy and I got up very early, five or five thirty one morning and went in where he had been before to be with him, knowing he was about to return to France and then hopefully to Vietnam. We all sat together in silence, as one does, as good Zen students, with our hands in the little mudra and, you know, upright. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh was brought in in a wheelchair, and there was a place for him in the circle. So we sat together, and at the end, the bell was rung. We might have done a little bit of chanting. And then he gazed around the circle, even though he couldn't speak. And Trudy, my beloved, my wife and wonderful teacher, colleague, all these things, described it this way. She said it was as if he was gazing 
with two different eyes. One of them was the eye open to eternity, emptiness, vastness, beyond this body. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, if someone tells you, I've died, don't believe them, I have not. I'm there in your thoughts and in your steps and in everything that I've touched and in this whole world. And you could see that there was a kind of luminous transcendence. And with the other eye, he went around the room one at a time, even raising his hand at some point to see all of us who were there, many who'd been taking care of him, a handful of folks and some other colleagues. And he gazed at each one of us to recognize and respect and honor in the most intimate and immediate way. And it was as if when he talks about, you know, seeing the whole universe in a, in a flower petal, he was manifesting that even after the stroke in that moment. And it was mm. beautiful and moving. Mm. He was, of course, a poet and an activist and a profound teacher and a monk and all of those kind of things. Um, when he came to teach at our center at Spirit Rock in the Bay Area, and we hosted him several different times, but a couple of times for big teachings, we set up the hillside so that a thousand or two or three thousand people could sit on the hillsides and there was a stage. So here we are outdoors in this beautiful valley that Spirit Rock is located in. There's a wooden stage and a couple thousand people on the hillside, a good sound system. And Sister Chan Kong and some of the monks and nuns led a meditation and then in preparation for Thai's coming, Thai being Tignan Han, they led an eating meditation with apple chewing mindfully and so forth. So we were already very much present. And then um, from where everyone was seated, you could look down this road that's part of the valley in which we live. And Tignan Han came to join us. And he was walking up the road slowly as he is wont to do, hmm. mindfully taking each step and headed toward the platform where as he walked, all 2000 people could see him. And it was as if everybody took a deep breath. Ah, oh, this is what mindful presence feels like. Hmm. Hmm. His presence and his attention was so deep that it carried us all in the wake of it and opened a space, kind of magical or mystical space of presence for the entire group at the same time. It was really quite beautiful. Mm. And of course, then he gave, as he did, these simple and deep teachings of, in a poetic fashion of true mindfulness, of each breath, each moment being the only moment we have. We only have this present moment. Anything else is our thoughts. In fact, we're always here. We never go anywhere. The only place we're here is here. When Ram Dass said, be here now, he could have said, you're already here now, right? <laughs> There's no other place except that our thoughts imagine a past and future. They think about a past, 
but it's actually not here, except that it's here alive in us now. And we imagine a future, but it's all right now. And Thich Nhat Hanh most simply and elegantly brought us into this. Mm. Now, another story to tell about him. I'd gone to Green Gold Zen Center, which is part of San Francisco Zen Center, for some teachings um, from Thich Nhat Hanh that he was offering to a group of us, a number of us as teachers. And um, he was talking about sitting, breathing with ease and calm, using the, because people can make spiritual practice into a kind of a grim duty. And he was talking about a graciousness of letting each breath be an invitation to ease and calm and steadiness of heart. And as he was teaching this, and he taught that little signature half smile of the Buddha that he would recommend, I started to feel very sad, hmm. kind of a grief. Um, but I was smiling, you know, doing my duty to be a good student or whatever, I'm breathing. And then I had lunch with him afterward. And I was a little bit confused, as we can be, because, especially in meditation, but it's true anyway, we're porous beings. We interact and connect so if you have a violin and you put it on the table and somebody plays another violin in the same room the strings of the violin on the table will resonate with it and and we resonate in that way so i had lunch with ty and i said you know i'm confused about something you were talking about ease and joy in there and i felt the grief and the sadness but what i don't know was is it mine you know am i coming in touch with something or is it yours and he looked back and he said i've seen so much suffering mm. he said that's why i must teach joy and i thought about it because he was an activist <clears throat> really early in the 1960s in vietnam as the american vietnam war the french vietnam war had wound down and the american Vietnam War was winding up, and he started the, I think it was the YS, the Youth School for Social Services or something with young monks and nuns, um, and they were attacked by both the North and South Vietnamese in different ways because they were fostering peace, and so each side said, well, you're not really with us. You don't want us to win, um, and a number of the young people, these are like teenagers and early 20s young people passionate who came in the middle of a very dangerous period to work with him were killed and died mm. and if you can imagine i mean he saw the incredible destruction of the war across his country north and south vietnam and then elsewhere um, but if you can imagine starting by bringing young people together again and having a number of them killed mm. what a weight that would be to carry in your mm -hmm. heart. So when he said, I've seen a lot of suffering, or I've felt a lot, I've known a lot of suffering, um, you, I could feel the weight of that being true. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet his presence was peaceful and joyful, or peaceful and steady, or peaceful and wise. And, he loved children. He had all these images of him leading the walking meditation with children. And I think it's because both he needed it, but also because he kept alive that child of the spirit mm. that's born in all of us. 
Mm. So I could go on with Thich Nhat Hanh stories, really? but so that's a beginning for you. Mm. I, I think I could listen to them all day. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Well, I will tell one more. Um, mm. I was teaching at a big conference for a couple thousand people or more at UCLA together with Thich Nhat Hanh um, on Eastern and Western psychology. And partway through the day, we were supposed to be doing a walking meditation between the sessions that we offered. And it was during a weekend that the U.S. was preparing to, I think, bomb Iraq or somewhere. I mean, we're always bombing somewhere. We're a warlike nation, I'm sorry to say, and going from careening from one war to another as we are making this podcast as we you know, hear all, all the preparations for some conflict over Ukraine, but the ongoing conflict elsewhere, so many places. Um, and a number of us had, as part of a protest, had on black armbands to protest the American bombing. And I said, Ty, when we all go out to do our walking, let's pass out armbands for everybody else so that we can do this also as a walk to um, raise our voices against the escalation of war. And he said, no, he said, no. He said, when we walk, we just walk. When we become the peace that the world needs not by protesting about anything, we become that which we can be. And it was a beautiful moment. You know, he stepped back from, even though he was an activist in all these ways, but in the seat of the Dharma teacher, he said, no, there's something deeper than taking sides in anything. And it was very moving. Mm. Anyway, I could go on, but that's <laughs> enough to, get on to <clears throat> whet your appetite. Yeah, yeah, really wonderful. I mean, I was just uh, I was watching the the interview he did with uh, with Ram Dass that I think was recorded in 1995 or so, uh, and yeah, they were they were starting to talk about uh, about anger and about social action and uh, God, I pulled some quote from there quickly. Yeah, the energy of anger may be a source of energy, but when you use energy, when you use anger as energy, there may be danger because when you're angry, you're not lucid. I just thought that's mm. so great. Who <laughs> really. said yeah. that? Tick Tick Han? Tick not Han said yeah. it to Ramdas. Yeah. Oh, really? Anyway, yeah. that that whole interview is out on on YouTube. There, everybody should go check that out. Mm. Yeah, it's lovely. Hmm. Okay. Okay, so moving on to my, my next topic in my grab bag um, uh, is a, a good one. Uh, intuition is something uh, you and I discuss fairly regularly, Raghu. Mm -hmm. um, so, Jack, I just wanted to start by getting some framework on intuition. Uh, how, how would you define it? Well, you're asking about it. I'm sorry to turn it back, but what makes you ask? What makes me ask? Uh, it, it's it's something. Uh, it's a subject that I want to write about somehow, and I can't get my hooks in it. Uh, Why do you want to write about it? What makes you want to write about it? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a subject that Ram Dass has uh, has talked about 
at times before. Uh, and I want to, uh, part of what I do for, uh, for the foundation is, uh, is I, I do some articles of, uh, based around different concepts that, that come up in the teachings. Uh, and it's one that, uh, yeah, I, I haven't been able to get my hooks into really. I, I feel like it's, uh, I don't know, maybe a bit of a nebulous topic. It's a little hard to just say, okay, this is intuition and go off and follow your heart kind of deal. I, I don't know. Well, can I say one thing? Please. Ramdas did uh, use one uh, analogy that ma- made the most sense to me. The Quaker, the small voice within, the small quiet voice within, I can't remember exactly, but that voice that is really deeply behind the judging mind and the polarized mind and being in it is being in an ocean without ripples and a place from which one can really, uh, I think mindfulness at that point is much more um, transformational for people Mindfulness with judgments and all of that, as we know, coming from your head and your ego, is is not really uh, going to be very useful. So the deepest part of oneself that um, is behind all of that, to me, is that still small voice. That was my take take right. from Ramdas. So, so then the the question, I guess, is uh, how do we get uh, beneath all all the uh, bullshit and get in touch with that? get to yeah. the, uh, the judgment and, you know, the thoughts and whatever other fun stuff our mind is uh, throwing in our path. Yeah, I, I love what you said, Raghu, of bringing Ram Dass's words to light here and the, that this silence beneath the waves and the depths of being and listening and so forth. So now you say, no, how do we do that? Well, there's a hundred ways to do it. (laughs) You walk in nature. You turn off your electronic devices. You meditate. um, You listen with your ear, and then you listen with your heart, which is a different kind of listening. You pay attention. You pay attention to what your body wants to tell you. You pay attention to what your emotions are, the, are, are are raising up to you. It was like me sitting there with Thich Nhat Hanh and he's talking about half smile and ease and I'm feeling grief and sadness uh, and not knowing is it mine or his, so I had to ask. But I was feeling my body and feeling those emotions. So one of the gifts, as, as uh, Ram Dass and Uragu point out, is that mindfulness or that capacity to become aware of something that grows in us. And then, you know, I said, yeah, but how do you get below the judgments and the, you know, regrets and the plan plans and the kind of critical mind. And the way, the first way you get below it, along with all those other things I said, um, is not to judge all of that because sort of, Hidden in your question is at least the possibility that you or other people could be um, 
think you're supposed to get rid of that and then get to this deep, quiet, silent, still smile, small voice and get rid of all that other bullshit, right? Um, but there's a m- much more beautiful way to do it and a more effective way. And that's to say thank you. Thank you to your, to, you know, your planning mind that's so busy trying to make plans. Thank you for trying to keep me safe. I'm actually okay for now. You can relax. And then the judging mind comes in and you say, oh, stop judging. I hate these judgments. I don't want to be so judgmental. But what's that? It's more judgments, right? So instead, you kind of inwardly bow and say, oh, the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. Because it's mostly recorded in there from God knows what. You know, your elementary school teachers, your parents, or you, you collected all these ways you're supposed to be. And it's trying to make you fit in or safe and say, thank you. Thank you for your idea. Thank you for the judgment. I appreciate it. I'm okay just now. And then you're not in conflict with it. Instead, you become the loving witness, the loving awareness, to use Rambas's phrase, that sees the mind doing that. And the mind isn't the intuitive channel. The mind does what it does, you know. It secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does it, right? And there are tricks to stop it for a while, but then it starts again. It's just what it does. So you say, thank you. Thank you for that. Now let me take a few quiet breaths. Let me go on, walk out in the yard or stand under a tree or find a quiet spot or settle down and listen to what my body wants to tell me. Or listen to what my heart has to say. And one of the really beautiful things is that when you ask, your heart will answer. If I were to say to you, Noah, what's one of the struggles you're having right now in your life? One of the kind of problems that you're trying to solve or work with. And we could do actually do it, or you could just play along for a moment and say, all right, it would be this or that or something. And I would say, uh, close your eyes, name that struggle. You don't have to go in a lot of detail. You could say family, work, plans, give me a, give me a word. Uh, self-judgment. Self-judgment, so close your eyes, right? And you feel all that struggle with self-judgment. And then I'm just going to ask you a couple of simple questions. Take a couple long breaths so you're quiet. Relax a little bit. Just two long breaths. And tune in as you breathe out the second breath to your heart. And then what does your heart already know? Keep your eyes closed. What does your heart already know? about how to approach all these judgments. What does it tell you? Yeah, that I need to relax. So it tells you you need to relax. Do you want to ask it anything else? Yeah, how do I do that? Okay, and see what it says. Yeah, I don't. 
not getting a response on that one. <laughs> well, no, hang in there for a minute. So it tells you to relax. Ask your heart, what is one good way that helps me with this kind of relaxing? And see what Just it says. Letting go. Mm-hmm. And ask it one more. Yeah. What's it say? Having a little love for yourself. Having a what? Having a little love for myself. Yeah, love for yourself. So before you open your eyes, feel that. Feel when it says letting go. Your heart knows what that feels like in your whole being. And you can feel it. Let it go. You don't have to do anything about it. Judgment's there, but it's not a problem. It's just there on the shelf like everything else. And then having a little love for yourself, self-compassion. This is your heart saying, hey, take a breath, put your arms around yourself, be kind, imagine that you, Noah, were a young man that came to you and said, hey, you know, I'm struggling. And you put your arm around his shoulder and you said, yeah, it's okay. You were really kind and loving that you could do that for yourself. Hmm. That's intuition. That's listening to your heart. It's one of my Zen master teachers, we'd ask him questions and he would look back, especially if we'd been meditating even a little bit with him, and he'd say, you already know. You already understand. Mm. How are you doing? Mm. Good. Thank you. Yeah. This is a, a little bit crazy, but I happen to be looking through before we got oh, on. Oh, wait, aren't you the source of all his judgments? Aren't you? <laughs> well, I mean, what are you going Jesus, to Jesus, I forgot. Oh, he forgot his Now right. we know who taped, who recorded all those in there. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sure. okay. But you oh, know what? Guilt. He's fine. He's a good boy and you were a fabulous dad. So anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I was just looking at this book, you know, Ram Dass's Words of Wisdom book that just came out. It has all these beautiful words of wisdom and aphorisms from him sectioned on. It's a lovely book, everybody out there. Anyhow, I just opened it just for nothing sake. And it was a chapter, Living and Loving Awareness. And the, the little quote, I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, which you just said. I mean, right? I myself. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Really lovely. Next. So yeah. I was, I was going to ask a follow-up question, you know, if, if it was possible for our intuition to ever lead us astray, but I don't know. After going through that exercise, I'm not sure that it really is possible. If we're actually you know what? we're human beings we can be led astray by anything <laughs> 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 you know it's just part of being human and then we course correct it's like riding a bicycle you fall off on one side hopefully you notice it before you crash really badly but uh, yeah. you know i wouldn't say intuition can lead us astray we can lead ourselves astray and the culture can lead us astray and so forth but the beautiful thing is that we can't really be taken away from our original humanity and our original goodness. We can lose it. We can, you know, be completely lost as some people are. Um, 
but somewhere deep down in there, there still is uh, that child of the spirit that was born into that body, no matter what trauma and what fear and pain gets enacted and how terrible they have, ter the terrible things they've done. Underneath there's something, there's consciousness. And in its true state, consciousness is who we are and it's, it's pure. Um, so we can get led astray and the whole spiritual path somehow is to remember, oh, that's not who we are. That that's not really our true nature. Mm. I'd like to add, without this sounding or being in any way a should-do thing, but um, in terms of finding that smil a still small, quiet place inside ourselves, uh, I think we all have had it at one time or another, an ineffable experience through one means or another, and that is giving us good cause to keep searching further inside ourselves. And then that yearning creates, okay, what are the things we can do? And as Jack, you, you listed a, a number of different things. And, and certainly with the, that intention of going out and taking that walk in nature or sitting for a moment or doing a yoga class, whatever it may be, movement, uh, that intention um, with the follow-through of actually doing something that will help guide us to that s still, small, quiet voice, I think is important. Awesome. Yeah, thank you both. Um, all right. How are we doing on time here? We're good. We're good. Well, I, I want to uh, say one more thing, Noah. Yeah because we're kind of talking about the mechanics of intuition in a way and how you open to it. Um, we live in a culture which doesn't, it doesn't honor or value intuition too much. It values the analytic, it values where are you going? How are you gonna see succeed? How do you measure it? And I live in the Bay Area near Silicon Valley where that's the question. How do you measure, you know, for anything? What's the analytics on your... Um, so like anything that matters to the heart, we can dedicate ourselves to listening, to intuition. Um, we can say by setting an intention, every day I'm going to take five or 10 minutes and just listen and ask what message do, do you have for me today, body that I should pay attention to? What message do you have for me today, dear heart, you know, that you want me to listen to. And then when you have to make choices as you go through the day or through life, big choices, you know, should I go there? Should I not? Should I be with this person and so forth to get in the habits, the wrong word, to have that invit invitation of that spirit to say, oh, let me pause. We'll call it the sacred pause. Only two breaths, three breaths, let me pause and ask, well, what does my intuition tell me? Along with what everyone else is saying and the ideas and the plans and all my thoughts. 
so that you become loyal to your intuition rather than to the external voices. Mm. And it, it invites us to live in a different way. Really? Boy, does that good. sound nice? Very good. <laughs> um, oh my, all right, what was uh, next on my list here? Um, yeah, so one, one of the things that's happened for me throughout the course of, uh, this pandemic is it's really, um, supercharged my negative thinking in some ways, um, especially, uh, in regards to like always, uh, always jumping to the worst case scenario. I have a cough. That must mean I have COVID. Uh, my mother's not replying to my phone call. Something must've happened to her, uh, and this type of uh, negative thinking, uh, I don't know, it's got a big muscle at this point. It's very strong in me. Um, so I'm just trying to, uh, I guess I'm just trying to get some space around that, trying to uh, decondition that muscle. Is that is that how we'd say it? That's one way to say it. Sure. Um, yeah. catastrophizing yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. no, it's, a... it's it's fear yeah i mean yeah, underneath it's... it the the emotion the emotion is fear and then the mind goes in and tells stories about oh they didn't call they must have been in a car accident their plane crashed they got covid and ebola and uh <laughs> you know were bit by a rabid dog on the way to the clinic <laughs> You know, and the mind is fabulous. That's why there's it's all unreal. those great horror yeah. movies. We yeah, know how right. to do that. And you get to make them in your head. And in a way, you got to admit, it's very creative. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So um, what to do with it? Well, you've gotten one step in that you've recognized and acknowledged it, that it's not necessarily that these thoughts don't have your best interest in mind. And that's already a really important step because in it you're seeing um, not inside the thought, but as the, as the loving awareness, as the witness to the thoughts. So that's already a step. All right, here are these thoughts. And I, I realize that they're not actually healthy thoughts or they don't have my best interest in mind. So then what do you do with it? There are a few things you can do. One thing is... Do you tell me, do you, uh, do you give voice to them, to the people around you that you live with or close to? Yeah, no. sure. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. yeah. So one thing you could do is to try for a week or a month to say, I won't say any of these things out loud. <laughs> All right. Try that and see who do you live with? My, my girlfriend will be very grateful for this practice. Okay, so for a month, you're not going to say these out loud. Then here's the next thing. When you notice them, because they'll be running like, a, like the little banner underneath, you know, when you're watching something, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and on the screen, there's a little banner with the, the news Subtitles. coming oh, in or the yeah. Dow Jones industrial mm -hmm. average or say they're just running underneath there. Mm -hmm. So then the second thing is not speaking them. 
is that when they get a little strong, because they'll be like little waves in the background and then they intrude and they take over, all right? Then your next step is to inwardly bow and say, um, thank you for trying to protect me. Mm. That changes your whole relation. Because if you say, I want to get rid of these, how do I get rid of them? I hate them. That actually locks them in. Your resistance to them Instead of getting rid of them, it actually makes them stronger. And they get bigger. Instead, you say, thank you. Thank you for trying to keep me safe. You can even say, I'm okay now. But you just mostly say, thank you for trying to keep me safe. I'm all right. Then the next thing to do, um, do you have, I mean, I know Raghu would because he's one of those old weird India Wallace, but you're different. (laughs) Do you have an altar at your house with pictures of, I, I do. Saints or I do. Buddhas it's, or any of that it's, stuff. It's back oh, there. Oh, you do. It's there there it is. Okay. Yeah. So here's the next thing is after you acknowledge them, especially the repeated ones, you know, that are really great movies. You can say, thank you for the great movie. Right. I'm okay now. Then you say, I'm going to um, leave you on the altar for now. And you're altered. I don't know who's on there, whether it's the Dalai Lama or Maharaji or, you know, Kuan Yin or some things on those. Say, I'm going to put you in the lap of Maharaji and, you know, Anandama and whoever happens to be on your altar. And I'll ask them to hold these fears for me so I can take a few deep breaths and just live more in the present. So that's a third movement, not to say them out loud, say thank you. When they come, thank you for trying to keep me safe. I'm all right. And then actually visualize that there's a little basket over there. You could put a little basket or a bowl there. Um, you you go in, in, in the Maharaji and, you know, Mother Mary will hold, will hold you for me. And you have to do that a number of times. But then it starts to give you the more and more space from that negative negativity that you caught in it's not the problem that you have the thoughts they're creative in a way they could hire you in hollywood you make some really good horror movies this is not the content it's the fact that you believe that shit (laughs) yeah (laughs) so convincing (laughs) you it is so you say thank you for a really great convincing movie I appreciate you're trying to keep me safe. Thank you. And for telling a great story. And now I'm going to put you in the lap of Maharaji and Mother Mary on the altar. And you visualize putting it in their lap. Um, mm. And you make that your practice for a month, along with not saying it out loud. So there's a few things you could do and see how that works. Mm. What do you think? That's that's great. That's uh, that's very uh, actionable on my end. And I, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Right, and your girlfriend will you tell her about it? Oh, she'll be thrilled. She'll yeah. be thrilled. <laughs> now uh, she's going to get more worried. Like, oh God, he's not worried anymore. Maybe I should be. Worried. Yeah, exactly. What's that's wrong? How, with that's how it works. Uh, okay, uh, one more question. Yeah, finally, um, last year you had you had done an online talk uh, about forgiveness. Uh, and it, it just, it, it struck a chord with me. Um, and I actually recently ran into a situation where just very briefly I had a crazy neighbor come up and 
want to get in a fight with me because he believed I had done something to his car. Uh, and uh, anyway, it was, it's fine. Not, nothing, uh, nothing came of that, but, I, you know, it shook me a little bit. And I was trying to just do a little, send him a little meta, something like that. Like I could tell he was in a bad place and that's why he lashed out at me. Right. Mm. Uh, and I just couldn't find myself really forgiving him, really sending him that, that energy uh, that I wanted, the loving kindness that I wanted to send him. I was doing it, but, but it was like, there was no real intention or meaning there. There was something blocked. Uh, so I remembered you had done this talk on forgiveness and it was a, uh, there was a really great practice in it. Uh, I think it was the three directions of forgiveness. And I was, I was wondering if I might be able to twist your arm into doing a a version of that today. All right. Well, first let's talk about your neighbor and you (laughs) because people do stuff and you pointed out it's beautiful. You know, because you're asking these questions that you already know the answer to. You ask about intuition and you actually already have it in there in your heart. Your heart knew, you know. Um, So in this one, you already are sort of answering to, you said, I want to forgive him or I want to let it go. Yeah. But it was hard to let go because I was still feeling what? Just on that basic level of... Uh, kind of a physical threat, especially in proximity to my attacked. home, my safe place. You, you were know. attacked, and it brought your like, how could you do that? And, and yeah. um, that, that, we get that the sort of fight flight thing that yeah, happens when exactly. you feel like you're being attacked, right? So it's kind of interesting. Um, I think as you approach forgiveness in this way, you don't want to make it a again a grim duty i'm supposed to forgive everybody or something like that instead you kind of listen and say what does it feel like inside in my body and heart when i still i'm caught in that he was angry at me and it triggered all um, i got my own damn anger and it it triggered it how does that feel and you can notice it even now you know um and you have the thoughts that justified he shouldn't have acted that way and it's unfair and so forth. Even though another very wise part of you said, the poor guy must be having a really tough week. You knew that. You said he's obviously got his own pain. But those thoughts, are you believing them? And you ask, all right, well, how, what does it feel like? Now, without trying to forgive him or do anything, let your intuition your un- and your, un- your attention say, what would it feel like if I let it go? How would my body and mind feel? And just ask. Yeah. Because these things will happen and people don't always do what we want. They get, they get pissy and difficult. How does it feel? If you don't, what would it feel like? Yeah, if I if I didn't let it go, I'd just be holding on to this tension inside of me. Right, and you can feel that. And what yeah. would it feel like if you did let it go? Just release, washing away. Yeah, close your eyes and tell me a little more about it. Release and washing away. What's that feel like? Just you know that 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 feeling of of tension washing out of a a muscle that's been straining. 
Yeah, so keep, stay with it. So now, you know, here you are feeling that release of tension, that ease and so forth. And then your mind comes in. You should still say pissed. You should still say angry. And you should get in it. Yeah. Um, And feel now that landscape and feel also that you can direct your mind. This is the one of the first instructions in the Dhammapada and the Buddha's teaching of how do you direct your attention? Do you direct it toward he hurt me and harm me and perpetuate it? Or do you advert and turn your attention to well-being in yourself and others and feel that there's this choice right now because you've got it right in your body. And notice what happens if you say, I think I'll live in this much more pleasant state of letting, just letting it pass through, saying, okay, he was having a hard day. I don't have to take it personally. What's that feel like? Oh, so much better. Yeah. So you're not even forgiving him. That's that's sort of a, a nice word and a concept. It's actually, this is who it's for. Yeah. It's for Noah. It's not about this poor guy, <clears throat> you know, who may be suffering and causing a lot of havoc and pain to people as well as himself. It's for you. It's like the two ex-prisoners of war that met, you know, t- 25 years later that they'd been captives and tortured and the first one said the other well you know have you forgiven your captors yet the second one said no never and the first one said well then they still have you captive don't they Mm. so it's really about what's tender and wise and um, respectful to your own heart and mind and body and and when you slow down a little you can feel it and then you can you actually can choose which direction, what to invite into consciousness. It's a whole practice, and I do a whole preparation for it. So what I'd rather you do is link this, put a link in this mm. podcast or link this podcast yeah, to that teaching so that if people want it, because it's such a beautiful thing to yes, know that yes. there is a practice of forgiveness that you can do once, twice, several, a half dozen times, and a dozen times, and then gradually you go, oh, as you just did so beautifully, I feel the landscape of this. I know what's possible. And it starts to become more accessible in the way that you live. So that's, I would rather do that so they get the that's full, perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. full package yeah. of yeah. it. Yeah, wonderful. We will definitely link to that. Um, yeah, I- before we go, I just I had found something else from Ram Das that is is so absolutely in in sync with what uh, we've just been talking about. It's from Love Is a State of Being. When you see the beloved all around you, everyone is family, and everywhere is love. When I allow myself to see the beauty of another being and see the inherent beauty of soul manifesting itself. I feel the quality of love in that being's presence. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We could be talking about cats because we happen to be picking out cat food in the supermarket. Or we could simply be passing each other by on the sidewalk. When you are being love, you extend an environment outward that allows others to act in different, more loving, 
more peaceful ways than they are used to behaving. Not only does it let them be more loving, but it also encourages them to be so. Gorgeous. Isn't it? Gorgeous. And it reminds me to go full circle of that famous passage from Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. um, where he said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, <clears throat> if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered and maybe kind, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so again, taking Ramdas's beautiful words and weaving it back with Thich Nhat Hanh, it's our being, our presence, and our ability, whether you do in Ramdas's language, to be love, or in Thich Nhat Hanh's language, to be that still center in which you know things are happening around. We're not taking it personally. It's just the play of joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and happiness and anger and fear. They come and go like waves of the ocean. And we're that centered one in the boat. Or we are love, looking at all through the eyes of love and seeing, oh, yeah, this is what humanity looks like. And it sure needs a lot of love. And underneath, it's what who we are. So that's a beautiful passage from Ramdas. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Boy, do we need all of it in these times. All you need is love. Love. <laughs> love is all you need. Dun, okay. dun, 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 dun. Hey, Noah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was that was really wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me here. It's been very Okay, well, we're not quite done yet. <clears throat> think about that guy, your neighbor. How is it right now when you think of him? Totally calm. Nothing Not, there, just at yeah. ease. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Tension is gone. Yeah. Okay. Now I feel done. All right. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you, Jack, everybody. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Listen to Jack on his show, uh, podcast on Be Here Now Network. Go to Be Here Now Network.com and, uh, and love to everybody. We'll shall see, we shall see you next week. Thanks, Noah. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Raghu. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.